whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us who you are, and a bit about the kind of philosophical work you do? I'm Sophie Grace Chapel. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm Professor of Philosophy at the Open University in the UK, and I live in Dundee in Scotland, where it's a sunny day, and we've just had thunderstorms, so it's all, and then it rains, it's all smelling beautifully warm and crisp and and fresh. I write mainly on ethics, but also on ancient philosophy, and sometimes on epistemology and philosophy of mind and various other things. I suppose my approach in philosophy could be called a sort of something like a Neoplatonist approach. My big inspirations in philosophy are are Plato, Iris Murdoch, Bernard Williams, Charles Taylor, Alistair MacIntyre. I recently wrote a book called Knowing What to Do. The title's kind of ironic because it's precisely not a a how-to book. It's precisely not a book that says, this is the one simple rule of thumb method for solving all problems. On the contrary, knowing what to do is about how many different ways there are to know what to do, and indeed to do. It's about the variety of ethical knowledge and the variety of ethical action. So that was my last book, and my current book, Epiphanies, which I hope will be out in a year or so, is is about the topic of epiphanies, the topic of those wow moments in life, those revelatory moments when we see things in a new way that I call epiphanies, following James Joyce and others. And those experiences, I think, are revelations of value in the world to us, and I think they're, if there's anything which counts as the foundation in ethics, then it's something like them. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. And like you, I'm very much inspired by Iris Murdoch. And she begins each episode telling us that philosophy is not self-expression. But she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. And that frames the first question I always ask. Does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? It does. And it's a basic belief of mine in philosophy that one's temperament should influence one's philosophy. Certainly, I think that's true in ethics. It might be less true because philosophy is such a a house of many mansions. There's a lot of things that go on. If you're doing something which is virtually straight neuroscience or straight economics, as you can be in philosophy, then perhaps your approach should be more scientific and less humanistic, but certainly ethics is a humanity. And in the humanities, one is at the same time, as Murdoch says, exploring the way one is, the way way of one's being in the world, and also trying to discover the truth. And I think it's important here that the truth isn't necessarily a uh, monolithic unitary thing. We discover different truths. We discover different aspects of the truth. And philosophers do that in ethics, I think, in something like the way that different novelists do. We would say, I think we'd be right to say, that George Eliot and Tolstoy and various other novelists shows their kind of truth about the world. And there's a sense in which I think that side of philosophy is there. 
alongside the ambition, which I think is laudable, to be aiming always at objectivity and truth that anybody could accept. One's also looking for some things to say that only I can say, that, that can't be said by anyone else. So my temperament influences my philosophy in ways that I think it should influence my philosophy, because as I say, I think I think style in philosophy is crucial. I think in ethics in particular, if you don't say what you have to say in the right way, then you don't say it at all. If you don't talk about our ethical experience with the right framing and in the right tone of voice and, and with the right kind of sensitivity, then you're not actually talking about it at all. You're off somewhere else. And that's all as it should be. So I, I have a kind of contemplative side, a kind of mystical side. In Britain, we have the the uh, schoolboy Nigel Molesworth, who is a, a kind of tough little schoolboy, and his antithesis is the the arch wet and weed, the arch silly little sissy boy Basil Fotherington Thomas, who 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 jumps around <laughs> in in Molesworth saying "Hello clouds, hello sky, hello beautiful day," and I've I've always thought, I mean, even before I transitioned. Uh, from male to female in 2014, I always thought I was a bit of a, a Basil Fotherington Thomas. And I think my, my basic approach to the world is it's a beautiful place. Hello, clouds. Hello, sky. I love that beauty. And I try to get something of that dreamy, contemplative side into my work. And I, I think that's a positive thing to do, provided it's done well. Negatively, I think I tend to see things very much in black and white. I'm kind of a combative person. And sometimes I get into fights that I don't need to be in. How do those two aspects of your temperament interact? I mean, do you see a connection between them or a conflict between them, or are they just separate threads? I think the, the tendency to see things in black and white is triggered when I'm going along in my own groove, as it were, trying to get across to my readers or, or to whatever audience something of the, the poetry and the beauty of the world, and someone has a go at me or, you know, stubs my toe, metaphorically speaking, or comes up with a very uh, simple and brusque objection to what I'm doing. And uh, then my, my, my balloon, my happy balloon is popped. And then I get cross with the person who does that. I think that sometimes happens. I, I think I'm better at um, avoiding that kind of, that kind of effect now than I used to be. But I think I tend to see people who, you know, want to bring me down to earth sometimes as a bit of a threat, which maybe isn't healthy. And, and of course, I'm, I'm very much the kind of philosopher who attracts from others the charge that I'm doing rhetoric, that I'm uh, floating off into clouds of lardy darkness. And, well, I can see the, the, the substance of that charge myself. I think it's a fair charge in some ways, and I, I try to prick the balloon myself sometimes. I mean, does your experience, your negative experience of being objected to make a difference to how you interact with other philosophers? Are you hesitant to criticize or to do it directly or to make it the main focus of what you're doing? No, I, I think I think if anything, the contrary is true. I think I think there are two sides to me. I, I think there is the, I, I can be a bit of a rottweiler in discussion. And I'm also this dreamy contemplative Platonist, a bit like Murdoch. And I think um, sometimes I, I go into debates with, with my rottweiler head on. And I, I tear into other people. And as the saying goes, I, I'm happy to dish it out, but I don't always like taking it. If people do that back to me, then I, I, I can get cross. Though I'm, I'm probably better at hiding the crossness now than I used to be. Well, I think there's a connection maybe between the back and forth of argument and criticism and the second question I want to ask you, which is this. 
Have you changed your mind about anything important or central to philosophy? And if so, how? Absolutely, I have. And I, th- I think it's perhaps the most the, the biggest landmark in, in, in my career from a subjective point of view is that in 2008, I had a mountaineering accident, which put me in hospital for 20 days. Wow. And at the point, at the point where, where that happened, I, I nearly died and came very close to dying. At the point where that happened, I'd nearly finished a book on ethics, which was supposed to be a canter through various kinds of philosophical theory, ending up in chapter, the the last chapter, with the rabbit coming out of that, and ta-da, here's the theory I want to defend, which is a sort, which was a sort of uh, rather moderate form of new natural law theory. So Mm -hmm. new natural law theory without the the, uh, severe Vaticanery that you sometimes get in that kind of theory. And... What happened in hospital was that I, I, I began to think, well, actually, do I really think that any of these approaches captures everything? I was very concerned about the direction of explanation, and it seemed to me that a lot of the time the things that needed to be explained by moral theory, that were purportedly explained by moral theory, for example, the badness of, of killing. In my natural law theory, I was wanting to say about that something like, well, killing is bad because it violates the value of life. And people have been saying to me for some time, well, you know, actually, it seems to me that the notion that killing is bad is infinitely more clear than the notion of there being a value of life, which killing violates. So to what purpose all this explanatory or pseudo-explanatory machinery? That kind of thought bothered me. And the, the thought, you know, am, am, I actually, am I actually putting my hand on things that really matter here? Or am I just spinning another academic edifice um, out of nothing in particular, building another cast upon the sand. Is this really what I want to do? And in a way, I guess it was a kind of collision of my the two sides of my temperament because the the, the Rottweiler in me, the, the attack dog in me, was turned on everything, including my own approach to ethical theory. And I came to think there's got to be a better way to do ethics than this building of systematic theories, which doesn't seem to... To put our fingers on anything really important, which doesn't seem to touch the stuff of life. And that had been a thought that had been floating around in my mind for a while. But in 2008, because of this kind of midlife crisis, everything changed. And I began to think, no, I'm, I need to find a new way of doing ethics. And so the book, I changed the name to Ethics and Experience. I changed the content of the book, and it no longer was a defense of new natural law. It was a defense of an anti-systematic view which I put up there for the first time, and I've been refining my articulation of how to be an anti-theorist in ethics ever since. Well, there are so many questions I want to ask you about this, and I'm not going to be able to ask all of them. It reminds me a bit of an experience I had in grad school when I took my general exams, which were not general. They were on the subject of your dissertation, and it was very much I was very much in the mindset of mastering the literature and grappling with theories. And in my exam report, the examiners who were, I don't know exactly who it was, it was sort of anonymous, wrote that they didn't feel my views had been, quote, tested in the crucible of direct moral experience. And I could see what they were getting at. I thought my first reaction was, you don't know me. (laughs) How do you know what I've been through? My second thought was, well, it's certainly not showing up in my writing. I mean, they're not wrong that the way I was writing philosophy in no way revealed anything about my ethical experience whatever it had been. I mean, do you feel like the style in which you write 
changed as well as the kind of views that you express in the course of this epiphany? I, I think so, yes, and I, I, I hope for the better. I think the result of that experience, that ordeal, if you like, in 2008, was that I felt liberated, really. I felt like there was an ideal of philosophical writing, a kind of impersonal, hygienic precision that I'd been sort of aspiring towards in things I'd written before that, and which I didn't need to aspire to anymore. Um, and it felt like a bit like this wonderful scene in the film The Mission, where someone has committed a murder and goes into the jungle. This is, this is in Brazil. He goes into the jungle in Brazil as a penitent for this murder, and he has on his back this enormous net full of all sorts of heavy weights, and he's crawling up uh, the side of a waterfall, a very steep, very dangerous scramble up the side of a waterfall, and one of the indigenous tribes are watching him do this and thinking, what the hell is he playing at? And the chieftain of the tribe, you're expecting him to, they, they have swords and spears, you're expecting him to have this person killed, but he signals to one of his warriors and the warrior cuts the burden off the penitent's back. And I think that's a marvellous image of what forgiveness can do. I also think that it, it was rather like that with me. I felt like this burden on my back of having to construct my particular systematic theory and pitch that and defend that for the rest of my life. That burden was off my back and it freed me up. I hope to write in a less impersonal way. I hope to write in a less bumptious way because there's there's definitely a bumptious side to my personality. And I think when people encountered me before that, they often found me difficult in that way. Perhaps they still do, but maybe less so. So I got less bumptious and I, I think I got more serious and I got to be less, less dialectically aggressive, uh, less inclined to knock other people over an argument and, and wanting to say, look, these matters are serious. As Socrates says in the Republic, this is no small matter we're discussing. So let's try and discuss it with appropriate gravity. I'm going to ask one last follow-up about this, just because I'm curious about how you feel about your earlier work. Do you ever go back and reread things you had written beforehand? What is that, what is that like? <laughs> I, I think perhaps all philosophers have this experience. You, you read something that you wrote in the past, and there are two ways for you to be negative about it. One of you is to think, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed, I can't believe I wrote that. And the other is for you to go back and think, oh my God, that's wonderful. I couldn't do that now. Yeah. I've lost it. I, I think I have both those experiences with reading my past work. I think what strikes me now about a lot of the things I wrote, for example, the way I end my my big set piece defense of the the secularized and soft edge natural law theory that I want to defend, understanding human goods in 1998. When I go back and read that now, I tend to think towards the end of it, well, you know, it's spooky how this writer, even in 1998, is already beginning to have doubts about the project mm -hmm. of systematic ethical theory. Although this person has just spent 200 pages defending that, clearly there's some unsettledness here. And yeah, when I go back to my earlier work now, which I, I probably do more than is, strictly speaking, healthy from a narcissism point of view, yeah. <laughs> um, what, what strikes me is, uh, you know, the little pointers that are already coming out there of, I, I guess in a way, I think it's self-knowledge. I think I know more about myself now, then, now than I did then. And I think I see now where I was heading, what I was trying to do in ways that I didn't at the time. So I think I'm handling transitions well here because there's a natural 
shift, I think, from talking about the style of philosophy and ways of doing philosophy to question three, yeah, which is, is there a work of art that you love in part for its philosophical depth? Yeah, well, how could you say this without sounding pretentious? I mean, it's, it's, it's very true that writing is of huge importance to me and that I enjoy it enormously and that I, I get all kinds of soul food from the things I read. I, I read all the time. I read everywhere. I read whatever I'm doing. And when I'm not at work, I, I don't, and, and at work, you know, at my desk doing my philosophy, when I'm not at work, I probably don't read that much philosophy. The things I read are mainly poetry and also history. I'm, I'm not a great one for reading novels, actually, though most people seem to read novels. I don't read novels that much. But I, I read history. One of my favorite history books is Thomas Carlyle's History of the French Revolution, which I think is just extraordinary. It's a kind of high peak of Victorian prose style, and it's, it's impossible to do that again. No one can ever write like Carlyle did again in that book. No, not even Carlyle can write again like that, because he would be parodying himself. It's, it's an extraordinary extreme of Victorian prose. So I love the French Revolution, and I, I love the philosophical loading of that history. It, it's, it is a philosophical meditation on the French Revolution and what happened in it, taken from Carlyle's own rather idiosyncratic viewpoint on history. So I, I love that. And I, I love, I'm, I'm currently translating Homer in, in my time off, and I'm, I'm about a third of the way through book six of the Iliad. And Homer is extraordinary. And I did an undergraduate degree in classics. And my, my father used to say, experience is the comb that nature gives you when your hair has fallen out. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I feel a bit like that. I feel, how could I have missed all these wonderful things in Homer when I did when I did Homer as part of my undergraduate degree. Coming back to Homer is enormously rewarding. And Homer is incredibly deep. Homer is extraordinary. And miles better than Virgil, but that's another podcast. But one thing, one novel that I would want to mention in particular is Vikramaseth's marvellous book, A Suitable Boy. And I read that probably three or four times. And what began to strike me perhaps the second time I read it was how Tolstoyan a novel it is, how how much of Tolstoy's manner, Vikram Seth, without parodying it at all, how much of it he takes over and, if you like, imitates. And I went back to Tolstoy and reread War and Peace, and I'm, I'm currently a little bogged down in Anna Karenina. And I think I'm edging towards the conclusion that actually I prefer A Suitable Boy to uh, War and Peace or Anna Karenina. It's such a deep book, and I'm, I'm not sure whether I want to call it philosophical depth, particularly. It's just depth, of which good writing in philosophy is one kind of plumb line, but good novel writing, good artistic writing, is another kind of plumb line. And it's the one thing, depth, which you can get at through philosophy or through other means. It's, it's the depth of life, if you like. And I haven't actually seen the recent BBC, I think it's BBC, the recent telly adaptation yeah. of A Suitable Boy, but it turned out to be six episodes, mainly about Lata's troubles with suitable boys or not so suitable boys, Lata's love troubles, basically. And that is just one aspect of A Suitable Boy. And the whole thing is a kind of wonderful all-night talk through all sorts of aspects of the lives of all sorts of people just after Indian independence in, in 1949. And it, it's a very 
It's a very profound book, partly because, unlike dear old Tolstoy, Vikram Seth hardly ever goes into explicit philosophical preaching or directly philosophical address to the reader. And I, I think that's one of Tolstoy's great mistakes in War and Peace, that he, he has these philosophical disquisitions which he aims at the reader. And um, some of them, frankly, are just not very good as philosophy. And all of them, I think, get in the way of the, the real beauties of war, of war and Peace. And A Suitable Boy never does that. It never harangues the reader. It always presents him with things and invites her to think about them. And I think parts of the book that particularly affect me are the extraordinary love affair between two men, one Hindu and one Muslim, that it depicts, and the extraordinary relationship of a musician with his teacher. And on, on the, the Indian guitar, the sitar, and also on the tabla, uh, the drums, the hand drums, and the relationship there is very reminiscent of things Alistair MacIntyre writes about a craft and the mastership of a practice. It's the same kind of expertise as MacIntyre is talking about, and there's the same relation of deference to the master. And the, the master is irascible, the master is demanding, the master is difficult. He's, he's a true maestro, and the, the student's relationship to him is, is a relationship of honour and a relationship of striving. It's all so beautifully done. And I, I could go on and on at great length about A Suitable Boy. It's a very long book, and it's just wonderful. It's so tempting to connect your preference for Seth over Tolstoy, given Tolstoy's predilection for grand theorizing in War and Peace, with your shift from theory to anti-theory in ethics. I mean, yeah. does, does Seth's novel seem to you like part of what it's philosophically right about is its resistance to theory. Yes, I, I don't know if Seth would formulate it that way, but certainly the book doesn't tell, it shows, and that's its great strength. I suppose, uh, th this is a huge leap from one thing to another, but I suppose it reminds me a little bit, in a little way, of, of the Tractatus and Wittgenstein's idea, the value can only be shown, it can't be told. I'm not a Wittgensteinian quietist or anything like it. I'm, I, I am a Wittgensteinian, but I'm not a seen Wittgensteinian. I'm very happy to write explicitly about value and to attempt to depict it in ways that definitely go in section seven of the Tractatus. But I have a lot of sympathy with what Wittgenstein is saying. And I, I think it's true, at least to this extent, that the reason why style and content are inseparable in ethics is because good ethical writing can never be just a telling of its audience about value. It has to be a showing of that value. It can't be in that sense detached. It has to be engaged. And yes, in, in what Seth does too, we have this marvellous showing, which is really quite resistant to telling, and that's a good thing. And just very quickly on Anna Karenina, the reason why I'm getting more and more resistant to Anna Karenina is that it's dawning on me, perhaps later than it should have done, that a lot of what's going on in the book is too nakedly Tolstoy setting up two couples, Alexei and Anna on the one hand, and Kitty and Levin on the other, and saying, Kitty and Levin is how it should be. Anna and Alexei is how it shouldn't be. And that just seems so crudely moralistic. Yeah. But it fits in with the epigraph to the book, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I shall repay. And it would be kind of disappointing if Anna Karenina boiled down to that. Perhaps I'll get some more subtle thoughts about it, but at the moment, crude thoughts are tempting. Well, I want to turn us to question four, which is 
not about philosophy or philosophical novels. It's about the rest of your life. So what is your greatest non-philosophical achievement? As, as Gwen Bradford has shown, there are different ways we might parse the word achievement. There's a astounding question about what counts as an achievement and why. And, and that's an interesting issue too. Taking the word as things that have happened in my life for which I was primarily or partly causally responsible and of which I'm proud. Well, I'm, I'm very proud of my family. I'm very proud that uh, we have four wonderful children and that despite the vagaries and difficulties that my life and my choices have imposed on the other five people in my family, we're still together and we still have a very strong relationship and we're a very loving family. So I'm very, very glad that that's in my life. Sometimes when I write a poem, I look at it and I feel like a chicken that's just laid the best egg in the world. Writing poetry is extraordinarily satisfactory when it goes well, when you produce something good. So yeah, poetry, poetry is something that I'm pleased about. And I'm a climber. So I think some of the experiences I've had in the mountains, putting up new routes, um, what I do is I go out with a friend, a couple of friends, and we, we climb new routes, routes that have never been climbed in Scotland before. And uh, my mate leads them, and I name them. That's an extraordinarily satisfying thing to do, to, to discover a piece of climbing that no one's ever done before in snow and ice in the winter in Scotland is wonderful. So there's, there's a route on Ben Nevis called Moulin Rouge that I'm very proud of, and there's, there's a route in the far north of Scotland, which is a frozen waterfall called Essen Fay, and I'm very proud of that too. So lots of things, but those are the things that come to mind first away. So our time is running out, and I'm going to move us on to the final question. This is another Iris Murdoch-inspired question. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? I'm not sure I'd call it fear. Though I don't know, maybe it is fear. It's a reaction, something like anger and a sense of violation, really some approaches to the world give me, and some approaches to theory. So call it despoliation and impoverishment, the thinning down of our environment, the destruction of the national, natural world, and the idea that everything out there can be streamlined into simple thinking about profit and loss. I was once driving past a wood with a friend, and I, I said, what a pity they've, they've cut that wood down. And the friend's response was, that's what it's for. It's a timber stand. It's there to be cut down. And I thought, well, in a sense, yes, but in many other senses, absolutely not. The natural world is not just there for us. And I, I hate and I detest and I resist with all my heart the ways in which the world out there, particularly the environment, is, is streamlined and simplified down and made nothing but a receptacle for profit and loss. And I'm resistant to theory in ethics when I think it does the same. And I, I think quite a lot, actually, consequentialism in particular is little better than the ideology of capitalism and equally destructive. So th there's a link in my thinking. I, I, see, I see pillage in the world around me and I see streamlining and, and crude oversimplification in the world around me. And I see blindness to all sorts of varieties of beauty in the world around me. And I see the same things in ethics too. And as I say, I'm not sure whether the word here is fear, but certainly dislike and detestation 
uh, will do. So on that note of resistance, I'm going to thank you one more time for appearing on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking to Sophie Grace Chapel. She's professor of philosophy at the Open University and the author of Knowing What to Do and the forthcoming Epiphanies. Thank you for listening to Five Questions. <laughs>